0: Hey, do you love scary movies? Do you like scary stories? Well, we've got a really scary story for you today. If you like the Saw movies, but you like them because they're not real, brace yourself because this one is 100% real and true. Stick around for the end of the episode. We're going to talk about it. They call Disney World in Orlando, Florida, the happiest place on earth but drive just 325 miles or so north of the Magic Kingdom and you'll find yourself in a place where dreams never came true unless those dreams were nightmares. They called it a school but the grounds were littered with unmarked graves. The boys that made it out alive tell of beatings, assault, torture, and murder And those boys, they were the lucky ones. And they got a small beam of light
1: against
0: the mirror. What was it that woke Willie Bell up that fateful night? It was 3.30 in the morning, the quietest, deepest part of night in building one at the Florida Reform School for Boys. A sudden sharp noise? The first hint of smoke? We'll never know. Willie Bell got out of bed, alarmed enough by whatever had broken his sleep to make his way through the darkness to the hallway. What he saw must have nearly stopped his heart. The entire stairway was in flames. Bell immediately realized the magnitude of danger and he knew something else. The fire escape doors were locked from the outside, locked with heavy brass Yale padlocks. He knew that and he also knew where the keys to those padlocks were because Willie Bell wasn't an inmate. He was the assistant superintendent at the Florida Reform School for Boys. With the stairway ablaze, Bell had no option but to climb to the top of the tower, attached to building one, and then jump to the roof below. Using a fire escape, Bell scrambled down the three stories to the ground, then raced to reenter the building and retrieve the keys to unlock the fire escape doors. But now the office was burning flames licking the ceiling the freshly painted pine interior merrily sizzling and popping impossible to enter willie bell took off running again joined now by one of the school's guards a mr allen somehow bell spotted an axe in all of the chaos and with allen climbed the fire escape to the second story landing Slamming the heavy axe, Bell succeeded in breaking the metal bars of the grated window to the screams of the boys trapped in the burning building. Three frantic faces hollered at Bell from the other side of the window. Hurry! R.B. Evans, a carpenter employed by the school. His son, C.M. Evans, a guard and an inmate. A boy whose name is lost to time. As Bell wrestled with the metal window frame, trying in vain to tug it loose, inside Building 1, the floor suddenly collapsed. Somehow, by chance or by miracle, C.M. Evans made it out of the inferno, but then he raced back into the flames in search of his father. Tragically, neither man survived. When it was all over, The weak light of a November dawn revealed the charred, smoldering hulk of Building 1. Reporters described it looking like the ruins of a castle. The Pensacola News Journal reported,
1: The bodies of the victims of that awful Holocaust were removed from the bed of coals and ashes inside the walls of the burned building and placed under a tree at the rear of the building that had been killed by the fire. Of most of the bodies, nothing remained but charred lumps of flesh and bone representing the bodies and organs that had been roasted to an unrecognizable blackened
0: mass. To say the press lacked sensitivity back then is clearly an understatement. Nearly a hundred boys had managed to escape death by clambering through a skylight onto the building's roof. Many were injured in the three story jump to the ground below. Injured, but alive. Ten were dead. The guard, C.M. Evans, his father, R.B. Evans, and eight boys, all under the age of 17. A funeral was a long time in coming for the ten who lost their lives that night, November 18, 1914. By the time the funeral service took place, the Florida Reform School for Boys had a new name, the Dozier School, and the funeral was in the year 2012.
1: Rhonda Dykes watched patiently as her great-great-grandfather, Bennett Evans, was lowered into his grave at Boot Hill Cemetery on the Dozier School for Boys campus. Bennett was one of those who lost their lives during a fire in 1914. He had been buried for 99 years before being exhumed during an investigation on the school's burial ground in 2012. When Rhonda realized her relationship to Bennett, she wanted to see him laid to rest back at the Dozier School.
0: I found a picture of my great-grandfather, who, which was his, his son, and um, I zoomed in on, on the computer and looked him straight in the eyes, and I said, are you sure this is really what you want me to be doing? And a piece came over me. Yes, this is where it needs to be. That's Rhonda Dykes, interviewed by WTVY News in January 2019. Why the 98-year wait for this solemn ceremony? What did Dykes mean when she said, Exhumed and then reburied. And who exactly was her great great grandfather? His name was R.B. Evans, the carpenter, whose son was the guard who ran straight into the inferno in a doomed attempt to rescue his dad. Evans, along with the others killed that awful night in 1914, had been in their graves for nearly 100 years when allegations of abuse at the school led to an investigation. 51 bodies buried on campus grounds were exhumed and examined, and that process took more than four years. Rhonda Dykes made the decision that Evans should be reburied and laid to his final rest at the Dozier School. And so, as she watched on that January day, R.B. Evans was once again lowered into his grave, this time, hopefully, for good. The Florida Reform School for Boys may have gotten a new name, But no such simple trick exists to erase its legacy of violence, cruelty, torture, and death. Boys died there. Terrible, brutal deaths. Dying in that fire was a mercy compared to what some of those children endured. Their broken bodies were buried on school property, and what we now know were mostly unmarked, hastily dug graves. The school had acknowledged only 31 deaths, including those lost in the fire each commemorated with a marker in the school's Boot Hill Cemetery. And then excavators hired in 2019 to clear trees downed by Hurricane Michael and prep polluted ground for cleanup, they found more graves, and then more, all unmarked, for a total of 82 burials at the school. But former student Terry Burns told a Florida TV news reporter, that if the entire campus were to be scanned,
1: I guarantee they will find another 200 to 300 dead boys buried on them grounds.
0: Here's the thing about digging into the box of horrors that is the history of the Dozier School. Just when you think you've made it past the worst, the school serves up another steaming helping of sadism It opened its doors on January 1st, 1900 and didn't close them until June 30th, 2011. Bet you weren't expecting that. 2011. Want to hear a fun little bit of symmetry? The number one movie in 2011 was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. You know, the story of an orphan boy sent away to a mysterious school where he found himself battling the forces of darkness for his very survival. That's basically the plot line for the Dozier School, minus the magic wands and the butterbeer. So what sort of crimes might land a boy in a reform school like Dozier? The kinds of crimes the founders of reform schools like this one had in mind were theft and murder. The school was supposed to be a place where children convicted of criminal behavior might be educated and rehabilitated and returned to society as productive citizens. It just didn't play out quite that way. At the Florida Reform Dozier School, the laws were very swiftly amended to include crimes like incorrigibility and truancy. One of the boys who died in the 1914 fire, Waldo Drew, was only eight years old. The child had stolen a dozen eggs. His brother, Robert, also an inmate, was lucky to escape unharmed. Another victim, Joe Weatherby, 14 years old, had been sent to the school strictly to keep him from falling in with a bad crowd. Clifford Jeffords, guilty of skipping school while never missing a day on his newspaper route, he was incarcerated for skipping school and then burned alive. These are the names we know. These are the boys who can be identified. The boys whose graves were at least marked whose deaths were acknowledged. These are the boys who could be mourned. Too many others simply vanished. Victims not only of abuse and murder by school staff, but of indifferent record-keeping, their bodies dumped in the woods and brushy areas on the school's 1,400-acre campus. To this day, there are still human remains found on that property. ...that have yet to be identified. At its founding, the school was segregated... ...and remained segregated until 1968. Building 1 housed the white boys. Building 2 housed the black boys. Though they called them colored boys and worse. Back then, the school didn't bother with niceties... ...like calling any of the boys students. They were called inmates and they were treated as such the school had only been in operation for three years when the first of many shocking disciplinary measures came to light. It was 1903 and investigators found children in leg irons. The report they submitted argued that this was not a school at all, but a harsh prison for children. In fact, the stories coming out of the school were so hair raising that state investigators visited the place six days, Different times in its first 13 years of operation. Why weren't these findings enough to spark outrage and a reform of the reform school? Well, you know what they say. Times were different. News didn't travel as fast as it does today. There wasn't social media to amplify a story, to make it go viral. Plus, people just weren't as focused on child welfare back then. And there was simply more trust in authority in those days, more trust in institutions. If the people in charge said everything was cool then everything was cool except nothing was cool at the Dozier school. By 1920 just two decades in multiple investigations also found evidence of boys being hired out as labor alongside adult convicts. Are you picturing a chain gang? That sort of thing? Yep, Except now, make it worse. They called it convict leasing. The state would basically lease convicted criminals to private citizens to work them however they saw fit. Which sounds a lot like slavery. Because it was. I'm going to tell you which states made use of convict leasing after the Civil War. See if you can spot a pattern. Alabama. Louisiana. Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Texas. Interesting. It's almost like those states found a loophole in the 13th Amendment or something. Almost like a little workaround, the whole abolition of slavery and involuntary servitude. Because while the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery... It helped those states put their inmates to work for the private sector with just six carefully chosen words.
1: Except as punishment for a crime.
0: Boom. See how the law works? It just doesn't always work for you or the way you think it should work at all. Anyway, as it happens... Florida boasted a reputation for having a more severe convict labor program as compared to other states and the Sunshine State was one of the last to outlaw the practice in 1923. Of course by that point too many child inmates at the Dozier School had put in their unpaid time in the fields, factories, on the railway lines, and the roads. And when those boys returned to campus at the end of the day spent toiling in the Florida heat and humidity, Under that relentless baking sun, it wasn't to a cool shower, a hearty meal, a clean bed. The school was only 20 years old at this point, and there was already ample evidence of boys being beaten with hands, fists, a thick leather strap attached to a long wooden pole. But even worse was soon to come. It became known as the White House. Built in 1929, it was a concrete block detention facility, segregated, of course. One cell for white inmates, one cell for black inmates. Its entire purpose was to restrain and punish violent or incorrigible boys. It was the site of the most brutal physical punishments, the place where the real beatings went down. I could list all the things we now know happened in that building, But I think maybe we should hear it from one of the boys. Roger Dean Kaiser, the author of The White House Boys, An American Tragedy, shared his own harrowing story. Kaiser was sent to the school after he ran away from an orphanage in Jacksonville. He said he'd been sent to the school for the crime of having no parents to care for him.
1: I waited for the two men who would take me to the White House. I knew the routine well as I had heard about it from many other boys who were taken there. Other than the time I learned that I had cancer and would die within six months, I have never known more fear than when I was told I was going to be taken to this place. My mind was just going crazy with fear. My thoughts seemed to be swimming in a circle like a cat that had been thrown into a cold river. I was so scared, I could not think straight. Two men picked me up and carried me into a small room which had nothing in it except a bunk bed and a pillow. They put me down on the floor and ordered me to lie on the bed facing the wall. Crying, I pulled myself up onto the edge of the bed and wiped the blood from my nose onto my shirt sleeve. When I looked up at the men's faces, they were plain, cold and hard. They had no expression whatsoever. I knew what was going to happen. I knew it was going to be very bad. I'd been told what to expect by some of the boys who were taken into the White House. I never heard from some of them again. I also heard that this giant strap was made of two pieces of leather with a piece of sheet metal sewn in between the halves. Again, everything was dead silent. I remember tightening my buttocks as much as I could then I waited and waited. And waited. I tried to jump off the bed, but I was knocked backward when the leather strap hit me on the side of the face. I jumped to the end of the bunk and began trying to climb up the cement wall, but there was nothing to climb. Mr. Hatton kept beating me with the leather strap about the chest, back, and legs. The men grabbed me, pulled me down, and held me to the floor. I was yelling, God save me, begging for someone, anyone to help. There was blood all over everything, it was everywhere. Please forgive me, please forgive me. I repeated at the top of my voice, please forgive me, dear God, please help me. God didn't hear me that day. Maybe he was smart enough not to ever enter the White House, even to save a child.
0: There were no age limits for punishment at the White House. Boys as young as six, right up to age 18, were brutalized. Any infraction at all could land you in that cement block building. Maybe you didn't answer a staff member's question quickly enough or had a look on your face that irritated a guard. Maybe you were witness spitting on the ground or slouching in your seat. Those were the boys who lived to tell what happened. In January 2023, 78-year-old Gene Luker, a former inmate and one of the White House boys, a group of men who'd been imprisoned at the school in the 1950s and 60s, told the Tallahassee Democrat newspaper that they have the names of 185 boys who entered the school and never left. 185 boys who disappeared into the brick buildings at the Dozier School. And then what? No record of their release. No record of their lives post-incarceration. No record of their deaths, no markers showing their names in the Boot Hill Cemetery. Are these the boys who were tossed haphazardly into disorganized, unmarked, unhallowed graves scattered across the school's 1,400 acres of land? When anthropologists at the University of South Florida studied the human remains found in 55 unmarked graves at the school, they uncovered not just evidence of blunt force trauma but of gunshots. Not a surprise to former inmate Jerry Cooper, another of the White House boys. Cooper told of psychological torment as well as physical abuse. Cooper described rape, older boys assaulting younger boys, staff assaulting inmates with impunity. He said that boys as young as 12 would be taken from the dormitory and then never seen again. Cooper's own experiences in the White House left him scarred with lifelong trauma. And he was only incarcerated at the school for two years. In April 2019, Cooper, then 74 years old, said,
1: I got the worst beating I ever got at that school. Over 100 lashes at 2 o'clock in the morning, searing the cloth of my nightgown and my underwear into my skin. I was sure I wasn't going to survive there were a lot of us who didn't. I told them for years, there's a lot more boys dead than the 55 they located. We've always known this.
0: Of course, punishment wasn't limited to the White House. Gene Luker, 12 years old when he entered the Dozier School, described the casual violence that stalked the inmates' days.
1: I had one instructor hit me so hard in the face with his hand, pow, I never forgot that, you know.
0: Luker said that the psychological terror kept all the boys in a state of near constant fear.
1: You didn't know when they were going to come in and snatch you out of class and take you down and beat you.
0: Luker said that at the time he was at the school, there were between 600 and 700 inmates. Luker said you'd hear things, awful things, about boys being raped. The suffering these children endured, the anguish they endured, it's just about unimaginable. And like everything else at the school, the torture was also segregated. According to forensic anthropologist Dr. Aaron Kimmerly, who led the team from the University of South Florida, quote, there's a disproportionate number of kids who were sent there who were black. And that number is also disproportionate in terms of those who died. Seventy-five percent of the boys who died were black. In late summer 2013, five now elderly black survivors of the Dozier School gathered on the grounds of the now closed school. John Bonner described building one, the white dormitory, as being roomy with industrial and wood shops where a boy could learn a trade and earn a certificate. Building two, the black dormitory, according to Richard Huntley, just 11 years old when he landed at Dozier, that was the slave side fieldwork, picking and planting for the state's profit. All five men recalled the stark fear of life in the locked dormitory, where the boys were captive prey for fellow inmates and staff alike. And of course, all had their own dark memories of being sent to the White House. Johnny Gaddy, also eleven at the time of his incarceration, told of being forced to lie on a bed while beaten with a belt until his entire body was bloody from the waist down. Gaddy also reported seeing a boy's severed hand in the garbage that he was made to haul off for burial. Gaddy was warned to be silent about what he'd seen unless he wanted to meet the same fate himself. If you're wondering why Gaddy didn't try to flee, why boys didn't run away from the school, They did. At least they tried. Johnny Gaddy said the guards would send dogs to run those boys down. And many of those failed runaways were taken for punishment. Never seen again. An investigation by the Department of Justice found three times as many black inmates died as white inmates. And according to the Miami Herald, were also three times more likely to be dumped in unmarked graves. The DOJ also found that a fair number of the Black boys sent to Dozier were there for non-criminal infractions, stuff like skipping school or running away from home. And reflecting the racism of the segregated South, Black inmates were far less likely to be named in the historical record. It's hard to hear that and not think of how utterly dehumanized these boys were, how little their lives were valued, how disposable they had seemed and had been to the men in charge, and how many of their bones have yet to be unearthed, how many will never be recovered. Between 1911 and 1973, it's believed that a minimum, a minimum of 96 children lost their lives at the Dozier School. The 1914 fire accounts for eight of those deaths. Another handful of boys died from influenza or poor health. The others, if not outright murdered, died of injuries sustained as a result of brutal corporal punishment. And most of those burials weren't documented, meaning those boys died as though they had never lived. It's believed that 96 is a low estimate in terms of body count, because changes to privacy laws after 1960 have made the task far more difficult for researchers, and time and nature have conspired to hide evidence. Plant life goes wild in the Florida climate, and that overgrowth has made searching for signs of burials ever more complicated with each passing season. One question you might be asking is, where were the families of those boys? How was this allowed to happen? It's true that some of the inmates were orphans, but even they were known by someone on the outside. Listen, many of the families tried for years to learn the whereabouts, the fate of their sons and brothers. Owen Smith was sent to Dozier in 1940. He'd run away from home, then stole a car and wrecked it. His sister, Ovelle said, that was the last the family ever saw of Owen. They wrote letters to the school and they were eventually told that Owen had escaped. When the boy was captured by law enforcement, his father immediately went to retrieve Owen, only to be told that he'd already been sent straight back to the Dozier School. Ovell Smith Krell, her married name, said the family heard from a former inmate that Owen had been taken to the White House and then carried out to the infirmary. The boy's mother wrote letter after letter after letter to the school pleading for information about her son. Eventually, the school replied, condolences, so sorry for your loss. Owen's badly decomposed body had been found underneath the house. The boy died of pneumonia, the letter said. He must have been trying to keep warm under that house. Now, the occupants of the home denied ever hearing or smelling anything, but the Smith family could not prove any wrongdoing on the part of the school. By 2012, O'Vell's hopes had narrowed down to a prayer that she might one day be able to bury her brother's long dead body in the family plot with their parents. Owen Smith was robbed of his humanity in life, then robbed of any justice in death. Just one more boy. One more body moldering in the ground at the Dozier School. This is the part where we talk about arrests and indictments and trials and consequences for the horrors that happened for more than 100 years on those 1,400 acres in Mariana, Florida. Surely some of the perpetrators were held accountable, right? Even if many were already dead, something was done, right? This was evil on an institutional scale. You don't just get away with that, right? Right? Wrong. None of that happened. Don't you know the physical evidence of violent assault and rape has a way of rapidly degrading when a dead body is tossed into a crudely dug hole in the ground, especially when the soil in that grave tends to be acidic as it is in Mariana, Florida the body breaks down about three times more quickly in acidic versus alkaline soil. Then there's the average temperature in the area, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, not conducive at all to preserving soft tissue. Guess that's why an investigation into the claims of abuse at the Dozier School by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement in 2010 found insufficient evidence to prosecute any former employee for any criminal behavior. I'm not sure how the state got around the problem of so many unmarked graves, of so many unaccounted for boys, but they did. They found a way. The school was shut down in 2011, a victim not of its own bloody and immoral history, but of budget cuts. In 2021, then 75-year-old Cecil Gardner sat in the rotunda of the Florida Statehouse and sobbed, recounting the repeated whippings and rapes he'd endured as a young inmate at the Dozier School. Gardner, one of the White House boys, had been on the receiving end of the state legislature's 2017 formal apology for the abuses the former inmates had suffered. But the survivors, they wanted more than words. They didn't feel an apology was even close to adequate compensation for their broken bodies, broken spirits, and lifelong trauma. 500 survivors demanding justice and reparations finally led to the filing of Senate Bill 482 in October, 2021. That bill died. In February, 2023, the victims of Reform School Abuse, House Bill 629, was filed in Florida And that one died, too, in committee, even with former inmates giving sworn testimony. It just didn't matter. Just like it didn't matter in 1958, when a psychologist employed by the school testified to the freaking United States Senate Judiciary Committee to having witnessed at least one school administrator beating the boys with severe blows using a 10-inch long leather strap and that the beatings constituted brutality in his professional opinion. Just like it didn't matter in 1962, when a former Dozier school employee told law enforcement that multiple school employees had to be removed from their posts because of a pattern of sexual advances being made toward the boys in their care. Just like it didn't matter how many graves and burial shafts were found by ground penetrating radar, on the campus of the shuttered reform school. The truth never mattered at the Dozier School, just like human life never mattered at the Dozier School. In January 2023, six of the White House boys gathered on the grounds as officials unveiled a memorial in recognition of the horrific physical and sexual abuse they'd been made to endure at the hands of the state nearly half a century ago. The memorial features a courtyard with life-size statues of adolescent boys all standing in line facing a blood-stained bed. On the bed is a leather strap. Off to the side is a big industrial fan. That's there because the building had once upon a time been a milking stall. That more thought was given to the comfort of a dairy cow than to the safety of a child is sobering. Leading away from the bed are three more statues. Two boys helping an injured third boy to walk. And next to that courtyard is a one-story concrete building painted white. The sculptor is Orlando artist Frank Castelluccio. He's deflected praise for the memorial, even when it comes from the White House boys themselves. Castelluccio said,
1: I wasn't trying to make it look pretty. I was trying to make it look realistic. We're trying to tell a story here.
0: A story no boy should have ever lived. A story none of us should be able to live with. Next time on True Weird Stuff, you have to be a special kind of something to attack another person with an axe and yet it happens all the time and one of the most infamous unsolved crimes in the world happened with the swing of an axe on the next true weird stuff this was a tough episode to do was it not
1: Really is. I mean, I mean, we can talk about Halloween time of year and horror, but this was true horror that happened right here in this country. Uh, It's just it's beyond belief some of the things that uh, some of the uh, young men at this school
0: endured. You know what I? And here, okay, so so many things. Here's the first thing. I wonder, Um, what kind of human being could. Um, perpetrate these crimes on a child. Like, do you, do you realize that absolutely no one who worked at the Dozer School has ever been held accountable for any of this? Does that not, not sicken you?
1: And it's not like they didn't know what was going on. I mean, there were different points along the line. Like um, back in the 1950s, there was a, psychi- a psychologist or a psychiatrist who came forward and said, you know, there's some really bad stuff happening at this school. And it was all kind of squashed down. And I think the idea is just because somebody is incarcerated, you can do pretty much – and I get—I don't know if this is the way it was then or we're better than that now. Uh, if they're incarcerated, you can do whatever you want to to them. And because they're children, they really have no voice.
0: One Well, one of the interesting things that you are confronted with when you're talking about a story like the Dozier School and these this whole reform school movement is um, – What a recent invention childhood is, the way we understand childhood, right? Because some of the kids that were sent to the Dozier School in Florida and other schools like it, we're just focused on this one for this episode, were, you know, as young as six or seven or eight years old. And so, you know, this is a reform school. This is meant to transform these young hooligans into productive members of society. But you had little boys, little boys that were sent to the dozier school for the crime of skipping class like they were school truant and so they were incarcerated in this incredibly vile and violent punitive environment we we don't think of children that way now although there are, there are plenty in this country that would like to turn that clock back and have kids working third shift at poultry processing plants. And in some states, that is exactly what's happening. In fact, I think it was in Wisconsin, we just had a kid injured um, on a third shift in a factory because kids probably shouldn't be up in the middle of the night operating machinery in factories. But the idea of childhood is super different for us than it was even 100, 150 years ago in this country. Um, The teenager is a very modern invention. You know, it was post-World War II when the teenager, the idea of a teenager was basically invented. And we just didn't think of children as people in, in the way that we do now. And so we could send an eight-year-old off to be beaten and sexually abused, violated and assaulted, and in too many cases murdered with no accountability what and and the thing about this particular story is this isn't the olden times like the school was built a hundred years ago but it only just closed right and it was only january of this year 2023 that the memorial to some of the boys that were brutalized at Dozier School was unveiled. So you can't tell me this is ancient history and people have changed, can you?
1: No, and the idea, you know, the the crimes that were committed against these children and they, you know, uh, there's, there's human beings who are committing these crimes and you just wonder what kind of a person is doing that, you know, I mean isn't there anybody going you know um yeah we need to punish you know they they're incarcerated there's maybe a reason that they're incarcerated but the, the kind of punishment that they were doing was nothing short of torture that you would see at prisoner of war camps you know in wartime i mean that's the sort of thing that was going on and it's just in reading the accounts you uh, some of the accounts that are in there of course you had me voice them um it's it's horrifying it's just It's horrifying to think that this actually happened in this country. You think that's something that happens far away. And um, no, that happened here.
0: Right here. Right here. Um, Roger Dean Kaiser, um, who wrote the book, The White House Boys in American Tragedy, um, you read from his book. And he was the one who said that um, these two men, he was he was eight years old, 10 years old. These two men who took him to the White House, he'd heard the stories from other boys, and he said, these two men picked me up, carried me into a small room, nothing in it but a bunk bed and a pillow, put me down on the floor, ordered me to lie on the bed facing the wall. Crying, I pulled myself up to the edge of the bed and wiped the blood from my nose onto my shirt sleeve. When I looked up at the men's faces, they were plain, cold, and hard. They had no expression whatsoever. And then those adult men beat that little boy to mm. within an inch of mm-hmm. his life. So you have to, like the real criminals in, in the story of the Florida Reform School, the Dozier School, weren't the boys that were incarcerated there for skipping school or petty theft. The real criminals were the adults who mm-hmm. were put in charge of taking care of them. And so in, without accountability... There's there's no justice for these children. There's no justice, and the number of times that legislation has come up in Florida in the state house and just been tabled and you know set aside, it's all performative. What they want, what they want is for those men to die so that the story of what happened at Dozier School dies with them. Yep. And, you know, that's just not, that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. And that's one of the reasons why we're telling this story in this episode. Because I I ask people, like, when we're working on um, different true weird stories, I'm like, have you ever heard of the Dozier School? Like, um, I have a really good friend who lives just outside Orlando and grew up, uh, was born, raised, high school, college, everything in the Sunshine State. Um, do you know about the Dozier school? No, never heard of it. Well, let me tell you a few things. Maybe it'll ring a bell. Nah, no, nothing, Mm-mm, nothing. So the forces of history that seek to bury these kinds of truths is winning in this particular case. Yeah. It's winning. So I have a little um, interesting fact for you, Max. Um, if you remember in the very beginning of the episode when building one was on fire And Willie Bell um, woke up because he heard a noise and he he didn't know what he heard, but there was something that disturbed his sleep. And he left his room and he went into the hallway and he saw everything in flames. And he knew that the um, fire escape doors were locked from the outside with these big old time heavy brass Yale padlocks because Willie Bell was the assistant superintendent for the Florida Reform School for Boys And he he was as heroic that night as anybody could have been. But what you don't know about Willie Bell, what we didn't put in the episode, is that before he became the assistant superintendent at the Florida Reform School for Boys, he was an inmate at another reform school as a child. And that experience didn't break him. It built him. And it built him into this um, decent, ethical person who wanted to do better by the kids than had been done by him. And he tried, he tried to save those boys from that fire that night. But again, you have to say what that, what the hell kind of facility are we running here? If you're padlocking the fire escape doors from the outside, like what did you think was going to happen?
1: I think the fact that this went on for so long at this school is the thing that's most haunting. And we've done, I don't know how many episodes we've done now. Um, but uh I will say out of any of the episodes we've done of True Weird Stuff, this is the one that's haunted me the most. This is the one that I've thought about the most. That's uh that I, I like when I close my eyes at night that I thought about that this ever could have occurred. Um, it it just it is the most haunting.
0: My husband listens to the podcast and he's not a true crime guy. Like he the, I mean, bless his heart. He goes to sleep at night to me watching Snapdragon 48 hours or whatever, right? <laughs> that, um, that would give him pause. <laughs> and you know, he's more of a sports and nature documentary kind of dude. He's like, oh, oh, um, is this one about, you know, murder? I'm like, that's not that it's about murder, it's about a terrible, terrible injustice. And an act of evil so vast and deep that it's like a cancer and nobody knows about it. And and we have to, the world needs to know these stories. We can't let them get forgotten. And he's like, oh, but it's so bad. And it is because it's haunting because these were little boys. These were little boys. Um, you didn't have kids landing at Dozier School that were mass murderers. These mm-hmm. are pretty petty criminals. And a lot of them were runaways. Right. A lot of these boys were runaways. And we haven't even talked about, I mean, the episode is called Unmarked Graves. They haven't even found all of the graves yet. They know because they have this incredible technology. We have this amazing technology now, ground penetrating radar, and they can scan the earth and you can find You can see it on the 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 radar, uh, readout where the earth has been disturbed, where there are grave shafts. Right, some of them more shallow than others. Um, An absolute, appalling crime against humanity happened on the campus of this school, and it was not like no accountability.
1: um, It wasn't like there was one or two of these people who were in charge that were cruel. I mean, there was 100 years of them, you know, or 90 years, whatever, whatever the uh, exact number of years that this school was open uh, of, of people that acted this way. What's kind of, it, I don't know, it's a little scary to think that there's people walking around given the opportunity to act this way because these children have no defense about what's going on that would be this cruel I mean, that's kind of haunting to think about. People you run into uh, on the street every day in the store, who, given the opportunity, would act this way so cruelly towards these children.
0: Yeah, would commit these atrocities um, with a sm- with a smile on their face. These are the kind of people. And maybe this is just me trying to protect my sanity, but I think to myself, well, the men who did that—they're—they don't have souls. They're just like empty skin suits. Cause I really do believe we should do an episode on this, but it's so, it's so, you know, the part of true weird stuff that um, is tricky is the true part. Like I've got to find the true part of what I'm about to say before we can do the episode. Um, there's a belief that not every human being has a soul. That's that not all of us are carrying an immortal, eternal soul. Some of us are just, you know, bags of walk and talking meat.
1: I, I was listening to a uh, podcast about psychopathy and and um, people who are um, psychopaths and um it's not like um you're you're zero percent psychopath or a hundred percent. There's a lot of people that have varying shades of psychopathy in between, and there's a lot of people. And I think what we're what you find is, given the situation, somebody who is on that scale somewhere is one of those people that um, uh, is able to do that and not have any sort of conscience about it. And I think these people, as you say, have no souls.
0: I mean, you just what are the odds that you know the job attracts? this kind of person, but we know that the job attracts this kind of person. And there was a lot, there are a lot of like social and historical forces that swirl around this story. Yes, children were being beaten, brutalized, sexually assaulted and murdered. Their bodies were dumped and discarded. But there, the the whole issue of racism at the Dozier oh, School. Oh, and that part of it as well. Oh, my God. So the the school itself was segregated because, you know, everything was segregated and the overwhelming majority of bodies and unmarked graves are believed to be those of uh, black inmates, black children, um, because the bulk of the unmarked graves um, have been found out in the woods and um, property closest to that building, building two. Um, And also what records were kept, and it was sketchy at best. Um, We have a lot of black children coming in but never leaving. Very Mm -hmm. very twisted Hotel California situation. But then the school was also using um, something called convict leasing that we talked a little bit about. So after the 13th Amendment was passed, abolishing slavery, um, convict leasing was a little way around it. So in um, penal institutions, reform schools and prisons and jails, um, you could hire out convict labor to work the roads or the farms or the railroads or whatever. And um, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, Tennessee, Mississippi, Texas, um, were all big on this convict labor. And so the boys at the Dozier School were hired out to work for free for private entities. So let's say you had a farm, right? Maybe you were a cattle farmer or because people don't realize how rural and agricultural Florida was and is, cattle farmer, citrus, whatever. Free here comes free labor from the Dozier school. And so it was a way around mm-hmm. the was way around slavery, which is when you think about it, um disgusting and uh, the Dozier school had a very, very severely bad reputation for um, exploiting these kids, sending them out to work in the blazing hot sun with inadequate food or water, and then they'd come back to the school, and um, they'd be taken out to the White House, which was the disciplinary building, um, beaten to within an inch of their lives with a leather paddle that had a strip of sheet metal sewn between the leather layers, some of them died, and their bodies were dragged out, and they were thrown into really barely dug graves left in the woods. You can only, what the hell? Like, how did this? How was this allowed to go on, Max, for decades?
1: Decades. And some people did, as you pointed out. Um, you know, during the course of the episode, there were people that came forward and said, "Hey, there's something going on here. You need to look at this." And nothing was done. Nothing. Was done,
0: and even now, even now, um, as we are down to like literal handfuls of survivors of this institution, I think that the they're just playing politics with it and just waiting for these these men to die, and to take their first person lived experiences with them. Because we can't get anything through the state legislature in terms of recognition or acknowledgement. And you know why that is? Because if we recognize and acknowledge what these human beings endured, then we also have to recognize and acknowledge the complete failure of accountability and justice for the perpetrators. And I guess that would make people, you know, uncomfortable. And nobody ever wants to look at that.
1: And – You would have to give them some kind of compensation and that makes people uncomfortable too.
0: (laughs) It's, um, it's a nightmare. It really, it is a nightmare. And I would love to say, and it's a nightmare in the distant past, except it's a nightmare that's still unfolding right now. Um, you have teams of um, anthropologists Hmm. and archaeologists and mortuary professionals Still dealing with what's in the ground at this school. And I know that I know that we all have a tendency, it's just kind of human nature, to feel a little defensive, you know, a little bit attacked. Like I can we just let the past lie? Why do you know why do we have to keep relitigating the past? That it happened and it's over. We should move forward. That would be great. Except. The present is built from the past and the failures of the past and the failures, the abuses, the atrocities that happened at the Dozier school. Those are the bricks that we made the present out of. So how do we go forward as a society? How do we go forward and, and let the past lie? If everything we are today is built out of that foul, toxic soil,
1: and this school only closed in, was it 20, 2011? Yeah. I mean, budget so, cuts. Yeah, it hasn't been closed that long. It wasn't because of the atrocities that happened there or all the bodies they found there. It was a budget cut.
0: It was budget cuts. So, um, yeah, we have to tell these stories, and they're hard to they're hard to hear. They're hard to face. It's hard to accept that this really happened and is still happening. But if we don't tell these stories then what are the chances that this happens again? Uh,
1: very high, because that's the way human nature is. You, you want to think that we keep on evolving with this, but, but clearly we don't. Because just about the time you think, oh, well, this could never, eh, nothing like this could ever happen again, then something else is uncovered. And you go, how
0: did that happen?
1: How did we let that happen?
0: I just, I can't, um, yeah, I can't. And it's a complicated thing because the history of the Florida Reform School for Boys um, reflects the very troubled history that this country has yet to deal with in terms of um, slavery, the Civil War, um, the the switch from agriculture to industry to information technologies – Like we're all of this is happening in real time, and we're we keep we keep glossing over the mistakes of the past and we're just repeating them, repeating them. And in this story, you see all of that playing out. You see our failure to protect children, you see our failure to deal with the horrors of racism. And and you see the failures in our government our elected representatives to hold themselves or anyone else accountable for these atrocities because it might stop the votes or the campaign contributions from coming in. And it is, I can't think of anything more cynical than what is unfolding every legislative session around this issue and these handful of living survivors who are all in their 70s and 80s, right? Right. I mean, isn't the isn't our youngest Dozier school survivor in their 70s at this point?
1: Well, um, I, I you know what's really surprising is that that school, the segregation in that school did not stop until 1968. Which oh, yeah. really is not all that long
0: ago. It's super late. So I guess, um, I, I, you know, as I've thought and thought and thought about this story, here's kind of where I am. Like I, I'm living right now in a moment culturally where it's all, but what about the children? We, we can't let them read this book. It, it, it's so bad for the children. What about the children? At the very same time that states are passing labor laws that allow the children to work in factories in the middle of the night, the very same political engine that's like, oh, this kid can't read about scott's two dads because that would be terrible um is kicking this under the table and doing nothing nothing to actually protect the children that we're all up in arms about the hypocrisy of it i guess max and is what makes me crazy the
1: hypocrisy you distilled this down into a written podcast
0: episode there's so much more to this story you could do two years of episodes on this. Yeah, pulling this down into one um, little fireside chat. Somebody could, and maybe should, or is in the process of. This is one of those things you could do a multi-season investigative right. podcast on what happened at the Dozier School, and I think that that might be. I can't believe I'm gonna. I am i can not believe we're alive at a time when. We need a podcaster like Sean Kupe to to shine the light on this disgraceful atrocity, in the hopes of maybe writing a centuries old wrong. Isn't it crazy the reality that we're living in right now? This timeline is. is wild.
1: This yeah, it is. is wild.
0: So we thank you for listening to this one. We know it's a tough one, but you know the scariest stories are always the true ones. Hmm because there's no way at the end to turn the lights on and laugh it off when the monsters are what we see in the mirror there's no way to hide from the monster thanks for joining us we'll see you on the next episode of true weird stuff
1: And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, hit the plus button in the top right corner and now it helps an independent podcast like ours to get discovered. And we really appreciate it if you subscribe, rate and review True Weird Stuff.
0: Hit our website, TrueWeirdStuff.com for show notes and photos and videos when we have it and bonus content. Everything True Weird is waiting for you at TrueWeirdStuff.com
1: and follow True Weird Stuff on Instagram and
0: Twitter. True Weird Stuff is a now media production. Our executive producer is Anthony Garcia. The show is written and hosted by me, Sherry Lynch, along with my deeply weird director, Max Sweeten. Our equally odd producer is Carrie Bowser. Additional production by the mysterious Stephen Call. Our digital witch and social media cult leader is Heather Furr. Original graphics by Kevin Nash. Original artworks by Olivia Axling. True, weird, original music composed and performed by Jack Griffin and Zane Nash. Copyright 2023, now media, all rights reserved, all wrongs remembered.